God's wrath is just and true and it's right. And you can produce your defense to the contrary, but you will find your court case weighed and found wanting. There's no excuse. There's no escape. God stands alone and says, let God be true and every man alone. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Uh, my wife Jen and I had a great time last week celebrating 21 years of marriage. That's pretty awesome. Thank you. Yep, she's a saint. Uh, we got married when we were four, so uh, great time away. And what a great sermon last week. What a, what a great service. It was really neat to, someone's really excited about it. Um, it was really neat to tune in online and kind of watch. So some of you who are watching online or have been sick and unable to join us uh, or out of town and you're able to tune in, uh, I was just really grateful for our, our media team. So can we just give the, the sound and media team a hand this morning? They're awesome. And um, they don't want the applause, but we appreciate the hard work they've done to enable us to um, have an online platform. But here we are in the book of Romans. Let's look at chapter three, starting in verse one. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged." But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning, and we do ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate and apply this text to a variety of different Christian hearts today. And Lord, that you would, Father, be drawing the unregenerate, dead heart uh, to receive Christ, to repent, to turn from sin, and to be brought from death to life. We pray, Lord, that you would do that work in each one of our lives today, that you would, by your Spirit, teach us and allow us to understand this difficult text, Lord, that we can be edified and encouraged in our faith and then sent out, commissioned out to bear the gospel in our lives and on our lips. So we ask, Lord, that you'd be glorified through this study, and it's in Christ's name alone that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, we come to what's regarded widely as the most difficult text in all of Romans. I should have assigned this to Micah last week. Um, but here we are, and what we would do well this morning is to lean forward and to not let ourselves get distracted. 
This is not one of those Sundays where I want to look over at you and you're kind of lost in contemplative thought, tricking me into thinking that you're actually listening when you're really thinking about vaccines or dinner, okay? So um, the, we need mental clarity today to rightly divide this text. So the scriptures often present to us very straightforward truths that are simple and easy to digest and easy to understand, and yet at other times we come to a text that is very not as straightforward, a little more difficult, and it takes some work and nuance to understand. Um, The Puritan John Bunyan, who wrote an incredible book, a fabulous name, the name of that is The Pilgrim's Progress. Um, I'm actually named after that. Um, Here's what he says about difficult passages. He says this, hard texts are nuts. I would not call them cheaters whose shells do oft times keep them from the eaters. So what we need to do today is to carefully crack open the shell and not give up and just toss the peanut aside because we can't open uh, it up. What we're going to see happening here in these verses before us today is a series of imaginary dialogues. This is a rhetorical writing and teaching strategy that's known as a diatribe. So you want to jot that down. A diatribe is where you speak to someone who's not really there in order to prove a point. So Pastor Pilgrim, are you saying that we're going to be studying a diatribe this morning? Are you trying to make this imaginary objection right now in the middle of the sermon? Yes, yes I am. Thank you for asking. That's a diatribe. So one person suggests that we should imagine the Apostle Paul giving his defense of the gospel in the the epistle we call Romans, but imagine that he's doing that in the middle of a Jewish synagogue. And out of the blue, a person becomes a heckler and the heckler begins to interject his, uh, his, his interjections and he throws out these replies that are sometimes, according to this one scholar, they're withering and abrupt. Okay, so picture that for a minute. But what I don't want you to think is that Paul is creating some sort of straw man argument. I actually believe, and some commentators agree, that Paul is potentially arguing against Paul the former Pharisee. In other words, he's thinking back, reflecting back at the time that he was uh, under the law and had placed all of his confidence in the flesh. And so he's anticipating those arguments. But now he's Paul, the converted Christian, who counted all of that as rubbish because he had gained Christ. So remember, Paul is answering objections that people would have against the rightness of God's wrath. And he's been doing that since Romans 1.17. But now what he's going to do in this section is he's going to address what I call the Captain Obvious responses that his Jewish readers would present to him. And last week, Pastor Micah did a great job concluding chapter 2, looking at the circumcised Jew and saying, well, is that what it's all about? And what he's going to do today is kind of tackle three big ideas and set these ideas straight by answering three questions that um, people Again, this, this diatribe, this imaginary person would be asking. Uh, and I think it's important to counter your objections before they happen. So one real great way of debate. Uh, by the way, we need to win the soul, not the debate. Uh, but it does kind of help to win the argument, doesn't it? Um, but when we do that, one way of debating is to know what your, your uh, opponent is going to say 
uh, before he says it. So um, that's, a, that's a good skill to have, and that's essentially what Paul does. So what we're going to see here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, is three areas as Paul addresses the self-righteous Jew, again, piggybacking off of what we read last week. So here's the three ideas we're going to look at today. If you're taking note, verses 1 and 2, the Jew's advantage. Verses 3 and 4, the Jew's unfaithfulness. And then in verses 5 through 8, the Jew's sin. These three ideas are formed by three questions. So let's begin with this first question, the Jew's advantage. And here's the question. The question is, do the Jews have any advantage over Gentiles? Look at verse 1 with me. He says, then what advantage do, or what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? So as people have been listening to Paul, some may have misunderstood his explanation of the gospel. And they assume that Paul is putting Jew and Gentile on completely the same playing field. So it's safe to bet that he can be misunderstood that way. Why? Uh, well, he back in chapter 2, verse 11, remember he said that God shows no partiality. Remember in verse 12, he said both Jew and Gentile will face God's judgment, whether they're under the law or not. And then in verse 28, remember last week, whether you're physically circumcised or not, God is looking for a spiritual circumcision. So the detractors, the Jewish detractors, raise their hand and they say, wait a minute, if being a Jew inwardly is all that counts, and if it's heart circumcision that truly matters, then is there any, are you saying there is no advantage to belonging to the nation of Israel and having been circumcised physically? Now listen, if you misunderstood Paul, then you would say, yeah. Your implied answer to Paul's question in verse 1 is like, no, there's no advantage. Yeah, I follow you. There is no advantage. And so notice what Paul says in verse 2. Does he say, nope, no advantage whatsoever? No. He says, much in every way. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So Paul says, hey, no, 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 don't get me wrong. There is a large advantage starting with, beginning with the penultimate reason, and that is that Israel has been entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, what does he mean by that, by that word oracle? Would you guys circle that word or highlight that word oracle in your Bible? The Greek word is logion. It's related to logos. But in this instance, uh, this word logion refers to spiritual, or not really spiritual, supernatural utterances that are important messages or sayings. You could even say it's special communication from a supernatural being to mankind. And the pagan religions would, would do this. They would have a medium or a seer, and you usually went and paid them. And these people would essentially give messages to you that were considered oracles. Now, we, we kind of have a modern-day counterpart to that, don't we? Uh, we would call them fortune tellers. So you go to a fortune teller, and you go and you pay them, and then they're supposed to tell you some mystical thing. Or we do this at Chinese restaurants, and we open up the fortune cookie, and we're hoping that those numbers will be ordained, even though they're printed in a factory. My favorite one says, help, I'm locked in a factory. Uh, I love that one. Uh, or if you open a paper, which is rare these days, and read a horoscope, um, or you get it through your email. Uh, listen, as a Christian, we should never look to any sort of medium, any sort of fortune cookie, any sort of horoscope. Uh, you don't follow these man-made um, ideas because at worst, that's sorcery and witchcraft, okay? At best, that's just ignorance 
and now you know better. You've been told. So um, I want to encourage us not to do that. So that's not what Paul means when he says oracles. Notice the definite article, the oracles, and note with me there, the oracles of God. So the word logion is used four times in the New Testament. It's always referring to either Mosaic law or the sum of the Old Testament or basic doctrines or teachings that are found in the scriptures. So these are not mystical words that you sit down and they've got the crystal ball that their hands are hovering over. And then they say to you, go sell all that you have and buy Dogecoin. Okay, that's not the idea. Uh, so the Jews, what Paul says, the Jews have an advantage over Gentiles in the fact that they were the people who were given God's special revelation in the Old Testament scripture. And they were entrusted like a steward to safeguard God's precepts. Now, just for a minute, think of this, how important this was. Look at the depth of relationship that God had with Israel. God had entrusted his covenantal people with something of, you could say, of highest value. So the higher the value something is, the more valuable it is, the more important it is that the person you entrust it with can be trustworthy. Does that make sense? Like young moms, you would not post looking for babysitter on Craigslist and then take the first guy who calls. Yeah, I've got a lot of experience with children. Okay, great. I'll see you at seven. You wouldn't do that. Uh, because valuable things like your children are not entrusted to people you don't trust. The higher the value, the greater the trust. So think about this. God had entrusted Israel with the sacred scripture we call the Old Testament. And then they were to steward the word of God well, and they did. The Old Testament was preserved with impeccable precision and care, and copyists and scribes worked meticulously at preserving what God had spoken through the law and his prophets. That's probably a study for another day. But even Ed Stetzer, uh, I don't have the quote, but he says, as for the Old Testament text itself, you heard this this week, didn't you? The Dead Sea Scrolls. He says, they provide good evidence of a carefully transmitted cortex tradition through almost a thousand years down to the Masoretic scribes, which were in the 8th, 10th century AD. And he says, thus the basic text of Old Testament scripture can be uh, established as essentially soundly transmitted. Uh, one uh, professor emeritus of Assyriology at the University of London who died in 2009, Douglas J. Wiseman, he claimed that archaeology, correctly understood, always confirms the accuracy of the Bible. So we need not be afraid. We actually should rejoice when something like what happened this week where they discovered some more parchment of the Dead Sea Scrolls in another cave. Um, we should be excited by that because that doesn't contradict the scriptures, when they read it, they go, oh, actually, this confirms what the scriptures we have today translated many years later, uh, confirms the historical reliability and accuracy of their preservation. So that's what God entrusted them. Now, it's early in Romans, it's early, but Paul says here in verse one, he says, or verse two, to begin with, and he doesn't come back to this thought until Romans chapter nine. Look at on the screen, Romans 9, 4, Here's some more advantages. He says, they are Israelites and to them belong, here it is, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, which you could say is the temple, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And from their race, physically, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. 
So Paul says not just the oracles of God, that would have been enough, but Israel was also entrusted with these important things, even and especially our Messiah, who descended physically from the line of Judah and was a child of Abraham. So the Jews were, the, the Israelites were the custodians of these things. And when we look at the Old Testament, you see that God had a very special relationship with Israel and considered her to be, among other things, he considered her to be his vineyard, his bride, his nation, his personally invited guests to the wedding banquet, and his fig tree. But see, a big problem occurred. Here's the rub. The fig tree that was expecting to be bearing fruit was barren. Remember on his way into Jerusalem, Jesus cursed the fig tree? That was a picture of Israel. The bride who was supposed to be faithful turned out to be a harlot. The nation that was supposed to be faithful to the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, she had, as a nation, prostituted herself out to other gods. The guests of the banquet who received the invite, they selfishly declined Yahweh's invite, and they even attacked the servants and killed them who came bearing that message. And so with all of those blessings and stewardship that Israel forsook, what would now happen to them as an unfaithful covenant member. Well, one person says this. They said, privileges imply duties. Honors go hand in hand with responsibilities. Could it be truthfully stated that Israel had shouldered these responsibilities? That it had been faithful to its trust? And if not, what then? And see, that's the second question that Paul addresses. If the first question was, do the Jews have any advantage over the Gentiles? Here's the second question. Can God keep his covenant promises, and still pour out his wrath on his people at the same time. Well, look at verse 3, the Jews' unfaithfulness. Verse 3, here's another anticipated argument. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? All right, now track with me, church. The word here for unfaithful um, is sometimes translated not believe. So, um, essentially, we're, we're saying two sides of the same coin. So to be unfaithful means to abandon a reasoned, reliable trust in a trustworthy object. So for that reason, you can translate it not believe. Same principle. Same principle as unfaithful. To not believe is to be unfaithful, and to not be faithful is to abandon your trust through disobedience. So there's kind of a play on words here in uh, verse 3. And John Stott uh, literally translates it this way. I'll show you on the screen. And this is how closely connected these Greek words are. He's basically saying this. If some to whom God's promises were entrusted did not respond to them in trust, will their lack of trust destroy God's trustworthiness? And again, the implied answer is, well, yeah, they blew it. So God has canceled Israel like America is canceling every book that I grew up reading in my childhood. I'm just gonna can't, I mean, everything's being canceled today. So what does Paul say in verse 4? If God is faithful and Israel's unfaithful, does that mean that now he's unfaithful? Well, look at the answer. By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Again, Paul says, by no means. And he's going to continue that refrain almost as a chorus that you'll see dotted through the book of Romans. You'll see it again in chapter 6. Now that phrase, by no means, really one person suggested it's not strong enough. 
uh, you really would accurately say, God forbid, or not on your life, not in a thousand years. Just because Israel was unfaithful to the covenant does not mean God is now unfaithful. So you follow me? The unbelief of covenant members doesn't undo the covenant, right? So some of you guys are into diet. If you are unfaithful to the vegan diet, that doesn't mean the, de- the vegan diet is flawed. Well, I mean, no bacon, no donuts. That's suspicious to me. I don't know. I love how Doug Wilson, he's so good with words. He says this. He says, can a Europe filled with baptized infidels undo the glorious truth proclaimed in baptism? Not a bit of it, and God forbid. Every last covenant member could be a skunk, and God remains true. Uh, It doesn't matter if you're unfaithful to the covenant. The covenant-keeping God is faithful uh, to either bless or curse. Now, verse 4 is such a powerful statement. I want to hang out here for a minute. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. John Calvin said that the first of these two propositions, let God be true, is the primary axiom of all Christian philosophy. Charles Spurgeon said it well. He said, if God says one thing and every man in the world says another, God is true and all men are false. God speaks the truth and cannot lie. God cannot change. His word like himself is immutable. We are to believe God's truth if nobody else believes it. And folks, I think we'll see more and more of this in the coming days. He says, the general consensus of opinion is nothing to a Christian. He believes God's word and he thinks more of that than of the universal opinion of men. Well, wait, what about the evidence for evolution? Let God be true. What about polyamorous love and transgenderism? Let God be true. Well, what about my body, my choice? Let God be true. You see, the whole world can be wrapped up in one universal lie and pat themselves on the back for creating this nonsense, but that does not reduce the truth of God. And Paul seems to be quoting Psalm 116.1 here when he says, all mankind are liars, so let God be true. But Paul also, in verse 4, quotes Psalm 51 here to great effect. You should, in your Bibles, have a phrase that says, as it is written, and then it should be tabbed over a little bit and set aside. He says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Okay, so what I want us to do for a minute is we're going to leave our place here in Romans, hold it, and we're going to go to Psalm 51. So turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Let's see why this is inserted here. Psalm 51, verse 1, starts out this way. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Oh boy, this isn't starting out good. I mean, we began our service today talking about Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord for here. This does not sound the same. What did King David get himself into? (laughs) We've got transgressions. We've got uh, sin, iniquity, blot out, wash, cleanse. What is going on? Well, listen, we don't need to fill in the blanks with our ignorance. We can just look at the next verse or look somewhere around that verse. So note with me uh, the heading of Psalm 51. Again, we just have to look a little bit in our Bibles, and it answers many of our questions. So uh, the heading says, To the choir master, a psalm of David 
when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Oh boy, this is the song that David wrote after the humiliating exposure of his sexual sin against a married woman named Bathsheba. This is the agonizing melody that he conducted after Bathsheba buried her husband Uriah, whom David had sent to die on the front lines when his despicable cover-up plan had failed. This is the tune that he sings when Nathan the prophet comes to him. And remember, he shares the parable of the stolen sheep and David is enraged with his sense of justice and he just wants that wicked man in the story to pay. And then Nathan says, you are the man. There's every time you don't want to be the man, it's in that moment. You are the man. And so notice what David goes on to sing in verse three. He says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, remember, I told you, we have got to lean forward here for a minute, so I need some participation. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Question, yes or no? Did David sin against Bathsheba? Yeah. Did David sin against Uriah, her husband? Did David sin against his, his wife? Did David, as the king, sin against all of Israel? Okay, so it's interesting here that David says, Yes, I, I may have sinned against all these people. And though other people are, are involved and have been sinned against, in the ultimate sense, it is an offense to God. So listen, you're struggling with pornography, young man. Uh, that is sinning against your own body, to be sure, sexual morality. But ultimately, it's an offense to God. And if you keep trying to get over your struggles and to not be, that's not where the, the victory lies. The victory lies in realizing I'm offending a holy God and I'm breaking fellowship in my relationship. I don't want to do that anymore. Adultery is sinning against your body, your spouse's body, and the person you're violating. But ultimately, it's a sin against a holy God. You might lie to your parents. You might steal from your boss. You might gossip about the person at church you don't like. But ultimately, you're sinning against not just them, but against God. So look at what David's next line is. His next line in verse 4 or verse, uh, yeah, verse four, he says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, David's assessment is this. My sin deserves God's judgment and his wrath. And if I'm struck down for this sin, he's just and he's blameless in his judgment. He's kept fellowship and faithfulness. I've broken it. And so if God is, is gonna curse me and judge me and I incur the wrath of God, well, then he's fair to do that. See, listen, you this morning could challenge God's wrathful actions and question your plight as unfair, but in the end, God's ways will always be vindicated. I like what Christopher Ash says. He says, in short, David admits that the righteousness of God is shown not only in blessing his people when they're faithful, but also in cursing them when they are not. Okay, so you got it? That's, that's why Paul is referencing this psalm. So go with me back to Romans uh, chapter 3. Now, to be fair, Paul does not say all of Israel was unfaithful. In verse 4, he says, what if some were unfaithful? That's his argument. He's trying to show not all who are from the loins of Jacob are truly Israel. Some were unfaithful. But your unfaithfulness does not forfeit God's faithfulness. Uh, so let's look at this third idea this idea of the Jews' sin. And he kind of fleshes this question out a little bit more. Look at verse five. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? 
that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. And then in parentheses, we get this, I speak in a human way. He's saying this is kind of a man-centered, man-made argument. But look at what his answer is again. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now, stay with me. I told you this would be a tricky sermon, tricky text. The question Paul is unpacking here is this on the screen. If our sin enhances God's righteousness, is his wrath still fair? And then if so, then why not sin more? Now, real quickly, uh, we didn't do this in first service, but the failure of Israel shows two things. It shows that they were unfaithful to the covenant, but it also shows that God was faithful to the covenant, okay? In the wilderness, in Deuteronomy 28, God had explained to Israel, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God and are careful to do the commandments, then I will set you high above the nations. I will bless you. And all of these blessings will come. And and let me just summarize them. God's like, okay, you're going to have my blessing whether you live in the city, whether you live in the country. You could live in Tampa or in Mayaka, and you're going to be blessed. Your family's going to be blessed, and your farm is going to be blessed. You're going to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous and flourishing in every endeavor. And when you come home or when you leave, you're going to have my divine benevolence out in front of you as well as behind you. Outsiders are going to look at me, your God, and say, he's worthy of praise. And as a people, you're going to be the lenders, not the borrowers. You're going to be the head, not the tail. Anytime you fight an enemy, they're going to be effortless to defeat. It's going to be simple. So that was the blessing that God had promised them if they were faithful to their end of the covenant. But there was another aspect to the covenant. If they were unfaithful, if they were unfaithful and broke faithfulness by disregarding loyalty and love toward God, then God would turn this blessing over on its head and it would now be a curse. In Deuteronomy 28, 15, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God or careful to do his commandments, all these curses shall come upon you. And then he basically lists the polar opposite. When you go out and when you come in, you're gonna be cursed. When you're at home or when you're abroad, you're going to be cursed. You're not going to be the head anymore. You're going to be the tail. You're going to fight enemies and they are going to easily defeat you. In fact, they're going to not call you, uh, they're not going to like, they'll exalt me, but they're not going to exalt you. They're going to call you a whore, a proverb, and a byword among all peoples where the Lord will lead you away. And so we have 53 verses of cursing with only 14 verses of blessing. So if you know your Bible, did Israel stay faithful? to the covenant or did they break faith and pursue other gods and abuse justice and righteousness towards others? You see, even though Israel had been unfaithful, God was still faithful to keep his covenant by cursing them. So the thought goes like this. My badness brings God's goodness more out into the open, more prominent. So that's unfair that I should be judged. Actually, I should do more sinful things to make God more glorified. Okay, that's a silly and stupid idea. We've all watched sports, right? And you've seen the dramatic, um, the dramatic player, the athlete who throws his hands up and says, oh, that was an unfair penalty. I shouldn't have gotten that. You've all seen that uh, if you watch various sports. But there's not a person alive, even if you're not into sports. None of us believe that the team as a whole should try to get more penalties to showcase the glory of the referee. 
right? None of us are like, okay, guys, get more penalties because we want everyone to see how awesome the, the rules of this game are, right? That's ridiculous. And so Paul calls this a human argument. And he says people have even committed slander by saying that's what I teach. Uh, but he doesn't even try to argue back this time. He just says, if you think doing more evil promotes more good, then you deserve to be condemned just on that lunacy alone. That's ridiculous. Um, I like what David Gusick says about this. He says, in theory, the most dramatic example of someone who might ask this question is Judas. Can you hear Judas make his case? Lord, I know I betrayed Jesus, but you used it for good. In fact, if I hadn't done what I did, Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross at all. What I did even fulfilled the scriptures. How can you judge me at all? The answer to Judas might go like this. Yes, God used your wickedness, but it was still your wickedness. There was no good or pure motive in your heart at all. It is no credit to you that God brought good out of your evil. You stand guilty before God. I was shocked this week to learn that some early Christians actually tried to saint Pilate because of what he had done in his complicity to sending Jesus to the cross condemned. They wanted to make him a, a saint. And that's obviously completely misunderstanding this. And so as we summarize Romans 1.17 to uh, this section, that will come to kind of a climax in verse 21, which thankfully will be at Easter, and it'll be a glorious time. What we see as a summary is that God's wrath is just and true and it's right. And you can produce your defense to the contrary. That's not fair, God. That's not just. That's not right. But you will find your court case weighed and found wanting. There's no excuse. There's no escape. You can't hide behind your heritage. Like a Jew, you can't hide behind your arguments about how you disagree with God's justice or God's righteousness. God stands alone and says, let God be true and every man a liar. And so next week, what we'll see is the, the rest of uh, this section will build on this idea that actually all have sinned. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, all have sinned. Uh, and we will then on Easter see the righteousness of God that's been revealed. Uh, so that'll be a glorious time. Now, how do we apply this text to a church family that's pretty much 100% Gentile? How do we do that? I don't know, Micah, if you found it tough last week to apply a section on the Jew to the Gentile. So um, I think there's a lot of takeaways, but there's three big takeaways we can, we can walk away with this morning. So if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to jot these down. Number one, I want to challenge us to abandon the notion that you are safe because of nominal Christian affiliation. Now, Pastor Micah teed this up really great last week. Some Israelites may have been tempted to think that because they were descended from Jacob or because they were circumcised physically that they were truly Israel, but they were not circumcised spiritually. They were unbelieving, they were unfaithful, but they thought, hey, I'm good because of my family or because I go to synagogue, so I'm safe, I'm saved. Now, I would apply it this way to us. You may attend a church. You may be a member of a church. You might even be a leader in a church. You may own a Bible. Maybe you even read it. You may have been baptized. You may have been confirmed. But are these the proof that you are in Christ? No, these are not where we place our hope. The question is not, do I go to church? The question is, has my heart been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Not, did you pray a prayer when you were six years old? No, is there evidence of the Spirit's transforming work, bringing someone from death to life? 
We want to see you spiritually alive, not nominally attending a church for your salvation. You're not saved simply because you look like a Christian, talk like a Christian, dress like a Christian, or you eat Chick-fil-A. Okay? <laughs> Nominal Christian affiliation, meaning by name only, like I got to look the part, I got to do the thing Christians do. That does not save. What does the Bible say? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So will you today, I'm talking to someone today who's, who's putting their hope in these things. I, w- I want to challenge you to abandon this notion that you're saved because you recited a prayer years ago or you have been in church my whole life. In fact, I was born a Christian. Abandon this nonsense and come to Jesus this morning and repent of your sin and trust Christ. Stop trusting in your self-sufficiency and allow Christ to do the work of salvation from first to last. This morning, I'll be available after service right up here. And if you have never placed your faith in Christ and turned from your sin and said, I want to know Jesus, I want to receive Christ, I want to follow him, I'll be available to pray with you. I want you to have the assurance of salvation today, that it's not in having the name or the fact that you attend a church. It's only in Christ. So abandon the notion that you're safe or saved because of nominal Christian affiliation. Number two, there's more. Number two, acknowledge, will all of us do this? Will we acknowledge your proneness to sin and stop being a phony? You see, I wanted to hit on that because David, as we just read in Psalm 51, he brought his sin out into the light finally. And God was fully vindicated in his judgment against David's sin. If you know the story, the baby that was conceived in sin died. But see, David had been hiding his sin. And once he was confessing it, uh, he gave up his hypocrisy. And during that time that he was hiding his sin, We read about it later in Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is a summary of what he had gone through. Let me just read this to you real quick. He says, When I kept silent, in other words, when I didn't confess my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then he takes a long selah there, a long long pause, a long break. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There's another break. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. See, when David hid his sin and was living a lie, he experienced mental and spiritual agony. God's hand of judgment was sitting heavy on his shoulder and he felt the weight, as many of us do, the weight of a guilty, violated conscience. And yet, When he stopped covering his sin and he confessed it, he immediately experienced forgiveness and freedom. Now, I will say this. It is hard to admit that you're a sinner, isn't it? Isn't it hard? It's not hard for me. Of course it's hard for me. It's hard for all of us. It's hard to confess our sin, even to name our sin. I remember I was sitting down with a guy years and years ago, and he was struggling with a particular sin that guys struggle with. And a pastor and I were like, just, just say it, bro. Just, you just need to confess your sins. And he was like, Lord, please forgive. And he couldn't say it. He couldn't get the words out. Uh, and it took like 15 minutes for him to finally name his sin. It's hard for us to do that. Uh, but listen, if you're here today and you have a pulse and you're not resurrected, then you're prone to wander, right? You're, you're prone to sin. And so we need to stop pretending that we're not sinning and we need to deal rightly with it. And how's that? We confess it. We just read it in worship 
that verse in 1 John. We, we don't hide our sin and say we don't have it. We confess it. I like what Doug Wilson says here. He says, David, one of the greatest covenant kings in the history of God's covenant people, confessed that he was conceived in sin and that the amniotic fluid in which he was formed was the fluid of iniquity. And so Doug Wilson says, so stop trying to protect God's reputation by hiding your sin. Christ died for sinners and God is reconciled. We should stop therefore, or therefore stop trying to win the, I didn't have to be forgiven as much as you did contest. (laughs) You see, we all are sinners and we need to just admit it today uh, that we're prone to wander. Well, finally, number three, like Israel, we need to admit that we too have been entrusted with much by a loving, true, faithful God. In the case of Israel, they were entrusted with the stewardship of the very words of God. And some of them were faithful to keep covenant, but most were not. So what is it that you have been given by God? Maybe it's health. Maybe it's strength, forgiveness. Certainly a Bible fully translated in our heart language. A glorious place to live and raise a family. And I would add, we have a great governor and no state income tax. So that's a great bonus. We have air in our lungs. We have gospel joy and on our lips. We have so much. And yet, most of us take what we have for granted. I read this week about what the difference is between being born in 1900 and 1985. And this is no slight if you're born in 1985. But they said, imagine being born in 1900. When you're 14 years old, World War I begins and it ends when you're 18 with 22 million dead. Shortly after that war, a pandemic flu called Spanish kills 50 million people. You go out alive and free and now you're 20. By the time you're 29, you survived the global economic crisis that started with the collapse of the New York Stock Exchange, causing inflation, unemployment, and hunger. Around that time, we have the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression. When you're 33, the Nazis come to power. When you're 39, World War II begins. And when you're 45, it ends with a Holocaust discovering there are 6 million Jews who have died and 60 million dead from the war. When you're 52, the Korean War begins. When you're 64, the Vietnam War begins, and it ends when you're 75. So just imagine that. And then they say this, um, a baby born in 1985, however, believes grandma has no idea how hard life is and instead believes the end of the world is when my Amazon package takes more than three days to arrive. (laughs) Listen, what is a loving, gracious, faithful God entrusted to you? We need to stop whining about our supposed plight, and we need to admit today God has been good, he's been gracious, he's been faithful, and as we begin our time this morning, we're going to sing of his faithfulness forever. I love the verse in Romans that says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not together with him graciously give us all things? So what we do is we sing that hymn, Come Thou Fount. We say, I'm going to tune my heart to sing thy grace. The streams of mercy that are never ceasing, they call for songs of loudest praise. When I reflect on the faithfulness of God, the appropriate response is I turn that back into gratitude and song. So we're going to do that together this morning. Let's stand this morning, and we're going to sing Come Thou Fount, and just thank the Lord for his faithfulness, even when we're prone to wander. So Father, thank you for your grace in our lives. We acknowledge this morning that we are all sinners in need of salvation. We thank you that you've provided an advocate with the Father, the mediator, our propitiation, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as Israel was anticipating deliverance, they realized that the curse would lead them 
into exile, and then even coming back into the land, trying to reinstitute the temple and finding the glory of that latter temple less than the former, finding themselves just bound up in trying to keep the, the outward parts of the Mosaic Covenant without truly submitting their life to the covenant-keeping God. And yet, all of their hopes were realized in the new Israel, Jesus, who came to bear our sin, who, uh, thank you, God, who is the one who bore your wrath. Jesus, we thank you that you bore our sin and you bore the wrath of God and took our place. And today, because you took our place, Lord, we are able to place all of our faith in you and the guilty one may go free. Lord, we thank you for that truth this morning. We are still prone to wander. We're prone to sin. We feel it. We acknowledge it. But Lord, this morning, we pray that we would turn all the blessings and favor and faithfulness of God back into obedience and gratitude and worship. So we do that now, Lord. We sing to you with hearts that are filled with gratitude at the grace and gospel of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.